0: Listener Production. Michael Clark has been called Australia's most controversial cricket captain. This kid from the Western suburbs, with his blonde tipped hair, famous girlfriends, and love of fast cars, took the conservative cricketing world by surprise. But it was what he achieved on the pitch that captured the country's attention and inspired another generation of wannabe cricket stars. Let's start
1: that and oh! shot to bring it up on as well. What a moment for Michael Clark. Not just as a player but as a captain here on his home ground.
0: My name's Jamila Risby, and later on we'll have the weekend list where Tate McGregor and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here's my chat with Michael Clark about the pressures of being a professional sportsperson, the brutality of the media spotlight. I've had my
1: challenges with the media. There's no doubt about it.
0: His friend Philip Hughes.
1: We just build a connection. You know, we build a friendship.
0: And being a dad. Michael Clark, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It's a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: And you're coming to us live from lockdown. How are you feeling your lockdown
1: hours? Early mornings doesn't change too much for me. I'm, I do breakfast radio, so instead of going to the studio, I do it from my house, which probably gives me an extra half an hour sleeping. So I'm liking that <laughs> part. And then my day is filled with even a lot of the business stuff I do now. I can probably do over Zoom or over the phone. My greatest challenge is to try and keep a five-year-old in a uh, in a house and not let her lose. She, uh, my little girl Kelsey Lee, is very active. So she finds it quite boring being inside. So trying to uh, look after her and entertain her is easier said than done.
0: It's a special kind of pain being in lockdown with a five-year-old. So I absolutely empathise. I did a lot of that last year. You just mentioned that you're doing some radio work, you're commentating, you've got a bunch of business interests as well. I wanted to ask about life after international sport because I've always looked at sports stars and thought, you reached this incredible level of achievement when the rest of us are just kind of getting started in our careers and then you move on to something else. What was it like for you in those early years after you stopped playing cricket?
1: Yeah, look, it's one thing that I speak about regularly that there is a transition period. Uh, I sort of feel like I was as well prepared as I I could be to retire from international cricket. I had a a back injury my entire career, so I probably – thought if I could play till I'm about 30 then that would be a really good effort and I ended up getting to 34 so mentally I was prepared to to leave the game quite young I've been really fortunate well certainly at that time when I retired to walk into some some tv work you know to still have work with a number of companies I've been an ambassador for you know all through my career so that kept me busy and occupied as well And, and then I had my little girl so there's always been things to do, but there is still a transition. There's no doubt about it. I, you know, for me, the the toughest challenge I faced was I was focused on one thing from six years of age, and that was to to play, try and play cricket for Australia and try and be the best cricketer I could be. And it was very clear on what my goal was when I walked away from the game. Then I found, you know, probably four or five things that I was doing to make my income. So that was very different to accept that it's okay, you're allowed to do more than one thing or you can focus on more than one thing and still be okay at it. As long as you focus on what you're doing in that moment at that time, you can be successful in different areas. And also I think the other part you miss is the sport, like why you start. Like I say, I started at six years of age and I miss that feeling of waking up in the morning at 5.30, running to the curtains as a six-year-old boy, opening the curtains and seeing it's not raining and just going, yes, we're playing today, cricket's on. So to fill that void is different. My daughter particularly has taken up a, a fair chunk of that, you know, that love that I had for playing sport when I didn't have kids or, or a child, I can now dedicate all that love to her.
0: That sounds like time well spent to me. I do think we, we often focus on asking people who've retired from professional sport about the, the come down from that high. Is there anything that's been really good about it? Obviously spending time with your daughter, but has there been a release of pressure because you were under, you know, the, the sharpest of spotlights?
1: For me personally, not really, because I feel like, I guess I always felt like playing cricket was the day off, was the easiest part of, of, of my job because I loved it. It was the travel, the training, the team meetings, the publicity off the field, The dealing with the celebrity side or the fame side of playing sport at the highest level in this country, that's the part that I think becomes challenging through your journey and unfortunately for me, parts of that hasn't stopped, particularly the, you know, the publicity around my personal life and things like that. So, you know, the only change I guess is the pressure that I put on myself to be successful in cricket, that's now gone. But it's replaced with the pressure I put on myself to be the best I can on radio, Uh, the best ambassador I can be for the sponsors I'm I'm with, the best dad I can be. I want to be fitter and stronger at 40 than I was at 25, like going to the gym and training. So, you know, I feel like, yeah, it is different, but the expectation of success is still there. It's just in different areas. It's spread out a lot more now.
0: We recently saw... Naomi Osaka withdraw from a major tennis competition because of the toll, not of the yeah. game, but of the post-match interviews and how they were affecting her mental health. And there's been quite a bit of perceived psychological struggles for Ben Simmons, the Australian basketballer on court recently. Do we just put too much pressure as of the media on sports people to succeed?
1: It's a tough one because I feel like my answer is dictated by how i feel me personally and i think that's the only way i can i can answer that question i've had my challenges with the media there's no doubt about it but if i'm to be honest i feel like without the media you can't build a brand outside of your sport so you become you know you can be a, a, a a cricketer for example and sit in the corner and you know nobody knows you yet the media help you build that brand so when you do finish You can get a job on TV or you can get a job in radio or you can work into another job or sponsors do want to keep you because you sell their products. So I've always said I think 95% of my life has been unbelievable. 5% has been a really tough challenge. But I think everybody would take that and run. Media can be hard. I get the whole press conference thing. There's nothing worse than when you walk into a press conference, you've made no runs and there's 100 cameras and 100 journos saying, oh, why did you get out like that? I'm like, mate, if I knew I wouldn't be sitting here, I'd be drinking (laughs) champagne celebrating. You're making 100 every time I bat, you know. So it is hard. It is challenging. I think it's hard to judge. And I think there's got to be a respect on both sides.
0: When you were captaining, how much did you take on responsibility for how the others were feeling, where your teammates' mindsets were at day-to-day, particularly when there were challenges or you were not playing particularly well, or there was an individual who wasn't playing particularly well?
1: I think, uh, again, strengths and weaknesses. I think I took on very personally their performance. So if they weren't performing at their best, then I took that on personally. I felt for them that strongly. I would prefer me to get a duck and, you know, one of my teammates to make 150. I wanted to win on top of all of that, but... It it hurt that much, you know. The part where I feel like I probably, if I was to Captain Australia now, where I've made improvements with me as a person in general, the mental side, I don't think I understood the emotional side as well as I probably do now. People deal with things differently. I think that's probably the one thing my daughter has brought out in me. She's softened me and she's allowed me to to understand and realise, uh, particularly being a single dad, you're around, around a young, a really young girl who is, ve- my, my daughter's very emotional, very affectionate, very caring, very gentle, and I think all of that has sort of helped me be a little softer and, and a bit more open to that as well and, and and maybe just understand it a little better, you know, not be so stuck in my ways that, you know, a little hard-ass sometimes it's like, well, just, you know, I'm allowed to cry. She's allowed to cry. She's upset. I'm upset. Like, it's okay to accept that.
0: Paint me a picture of Michael Clark at five years old. What were you like when you were her age?
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, it doesn't sound like it's going to be good. <laughs> no, nah, it wasn't great. We looked quite similar. I was certainly more of a terror. I was very active like her, so I found it very hard to sit still. I was a lot more disobedient. I think that's the one thing I love about my daughter because she definitely gets that from a mother and not from me. Kelsey knows when she's in trouble or she knows when she shouldn't have done something and she will apologise and she will accept that and she will stop where I sort of felt like, and I don't think much has changed, it's in a lot of rules are made to be broken. So I was like, can I push a bit further? Can I push a bit further? Can I push a bit further? And. Thankfully, that she's got some parts of me, but she's got a lot of parts of her mother, which is a good thing for her.
0: Can I ask you to tell me a little bit about your friend and former teammate, Philip
1: Hughes? You sure can. What would you like to know?
0: I want to know what he was like.
1: He was a legend, he was a true country boy that loved being in the city. His family was his priority, he loved his family spoke about him every day as he did his country lifestyle, you know, he was into into cattle. His family had a farm that he was on any opportunity he got. So even, you know, we would be batting together for Australia out at, you know, Lord's in a test match and uh, in cricket you come to into the into the middle of the pitch at the end of the over to talk about how a bowler's bowling or, you know, what what's the score? What are we going to do? And Hughesy regularly would be talking about his cattle, telling me he bought a new ball and <laughs> this ball's running I'm like, mate, you know, we just lost a wicket, we're under pressure. But that was his personality, you know. He he loved what he did. He loved, like I say, he loved the country, he loved his cattle, he loved his family. And yeah, you wouldn't meet a nicer guy. He was achieving his dream though. You know, he his dream was to play cricket for Australia. He was probably one of the most successful young cricketers that Australian Creed's ever seen. You know, you look at his record from 10 years of age playing in the country, there wouldn't be too many better to ever in this country have a better record than Husey. So he earned his stripes, he earned his selection in all of his teams. Yeah, I was very fortunate to meet him um, when he was quite young, when he first came to Sydney, and we just built a connection, you know, we built a friendship. And when we played in the same team together, whether it be for Australia, New South Wales, Western Suburbs, I wanted him to be successful more than I wanted myself to be successful. That was mutual because he was like that. You know, he was, he was loyal to the bone and he, he always cared about others.
0: Tell me about how it felt when you first learned you were going to captain Australia. How were you told?
1: I uh, had a phone call from the CEO, James Sutherland, of Cricket Australia, and Michael Brown, the general manager at the time, saying we are in Sydney. So both of them were living in Melbourne and working in Melbourne. They said, we're in Sydney. We've come to see you. Are you home? We'll come to your house. I said, yeah, I'm home. Is everything all right? They said, we need to come and see you. And I was living in Bondi at the time. So they come to my apartment and pretty much told me that um, Ricky has stood down from the Australian captaincy and we want to offer you the, the role as Australian captain. I was vice-captain at the Times and there was a lot of talk, I guess, as soon as I took over the vice-captaincy from Adam Gilchrist that I would be the next Australian captain, but you don't know what you don't know i guess there's there's no there's nothing in any contract i signed that said oh you're going to be the next australian captain so and i was i wasn't a great vice captain either to be honest i probably didn't suit my personality being vice captain so i you know i said to both james and michael i said oh you know i really appreciate it thank you i said look before i say yes or no to this i need to know what my job is What's my, what am I accountable for? What's my responsibility? And they said, well, we're currently ranked fifth in the world and we want to get back to number one in the world. That's your that's your job. I said, I accept this job. I can, I can help us do that. And then, you know, thankfully I, I did get that opportunity and you don't know well enough at the time. You know it's it's a privilege and an honour to, to captain your country, but you probably don't know how special it is when you're right there because you're focused on your job more than what the legacy of – being the 43rd Australian Test captain is. And then you retire, and then you get older, and then you get a little bit greyer and you turn around and have a look and, yeah, to play for Australia, to be the 389th player for Australia is so special to me. And then to captain Australia is, yeah, a, 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 an even bigger bonus, I guess.
0: Michael Clark, thanks so much for joining me on The Weekend Briefing.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for my conversation with Michael Clark. Do you think he noticed that I don't really follow cricket? But everyone in my life is cricket obsessed, so I feel like I've picked it up by osmosis and followed his life weirdly closely for someone who isn't into the sport. Make sure you reach out to me, to listener to the briefing on socials. We would love to hear what you think of these episodes and who you'd like to hear from next. And now it is time for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to read, watch, listen, cook, see, do or podcast this weekend. And I'm joined by the sunshiny Tate McGregor. Tate, what have you got for us? I have just finished Smashing Through Morning Wars on
2: Apple TV. And oh boy, does this have some really relevant themes to today's society. It follows the anchors of America's favourite breakfast news television show, as they navigate the cutthroat industry and essentially a really rotten work environment. It stars Steve Carell as a former anchor who was axed for sexual misconduct and then after he was co-hosting with Jennifer Aniston for a good decade and a half. And he's replaced by Reese Witherspoon. And essentially it's a commentary on... The power dynamic between men and women in the workplace, but also women and women in this workplace. I just need to be able to control the narrative so that I'm not written out of it. You stole my life. You left me in the woods with a pack of wolves. Have to have you just think I'm gonna do this? This chair could be yours. In my- I don't want your job. It's really good. It's really riveting. And very well produced.
0: I wanna recommend something for you to cook because given that more than half the country is in lockdown right now, you all need to get into the kitchen and get busy there, not on sourdough. Put down the sourdough, step away from the starter. You don't want to go there. Banana I'm from Melbourne. Banana bread. <laughs> Banana bread is fine. But okay. I wanna recommend I can't believe it's vegetarian ramen, which is from Bon Appetit. And uh, the chef's name is Andy Baragni. If you are someone who loves going out for ramen like me, this is amazing. And it's also a fast way to do it without, you know, the kind of like days worth of making broth. So it's the cheats way. It's absolutely delicious. It's also vegetarian. So it's a crowd pleaser. Everyone can get involved and you'll get that beautiful ramen you know, shiitake mushrooms and tomatoey and kombu smell all through your house, which would be a lovely thing to take you into the next day's work. What do you top your ramen with? You have to have 90 degree egg, mm. you have to have chilli oil and I like a little bit of a sesame seed. Mm,
2: yeah, big vibe. I'm up there with you. I've got something to get your ears across. If you want a podcast drama, if you're done with watching TV, here we go. Let's go all oral. This is a series that was spoken about on Brooke and Linda's Dream Club podcast. That's Brooke Boney and Linda Mariano's podcast. And it's called Soft Voice. It's by a company called Q Code, who have some of the most immersive soundscapes I have ever listened to. And it's about a character called Lydia. And she has an internal monologue that she calls Soft Voice. And this. Monologue leads her to success in every aspect of her life. But it wasn't only at work that soft voice made Lydia win. It was everywhere. For example, at yoga. Push the floor away, twist, windmill the arms, exhale, chaturanga. At being a plant, mother. Water the ivy, mist the fern, spit on the cactus. At badminton. Smash it. At marathon running. Go, go, go! Life with soft voice was a kaleidoscope of wholesome activities. Only one day she wakes up and soft voice is gone, to be replaced with another voice, and this voice leads her on a completely different path. No soft voice, no soft voice. And then Lydia shut her eyes and tried hard to imagine what soft voice would say, but suddenly she was asleep and her alarm was going and she was on the tube and she was in the office and her desk phone was ringing. It's mainly about self-criticism and mental health in general, but it's done in a really beautiful way. And in a strange coincidence, it features the voice of Belle Powley, who's a British actress who's also in Morning Wars, and also has Naomi Scott and Olivia Cook. So there you go, a little podcast drama.
0: That sounds something completely different to do at a time when I think we're all feeling the monotony. So I'm really into that idea. But if you just want to stick with safe Netflix, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we understand, guys, we understand. It's a hard time. If you want to stay in with your Netflix, that's okay. So I want to recommend and wrap us up for the week with A Suitable Boy, which is on Netflix. It is a fictional miniseries. It's based on the book of the same name. It was originally made by the BBC The book originally won a bunch of awards, and it's a sort of of coming-of-age story set in a newly independent and post-partition India. It's absolutely beautiful. It's about a series of members of a different family and all of their relationships and experiences. It's one of those sort of intergenerational dramas. And it also got quite controversial in India because very early on, spoiler, there is a kiss between a young Hindu woman and a Muslim man and they kiss in a Hindu temple. And it actually ended up being a really, really big deal in India. So watch out for that scene and know that perhaps it might not be as wildly worrying to you, but it was controversial elsewhere. Wow. Interesting. That's all we've got time for today on The Weekend Briefing. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of The Briefing or The Weekend Briefing, you can find us on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there subscribing, why not leave a rating and a review? It helps other people find The Briefing podcast. And if that sounds like a lot of work to you, you can just send this link. You can send today's podcast to one of your buddies so that they can have a listen and discover us too. Stay tuned. We will be back on Monday morning, bright and early with the latest headlines to your headphones with Annika and Tom. See you then.